0: I used to rely on the fact that I felt like I was having some kind of impact. More recently, I have been learning to accept the grief as well.
1: I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Climate Pivot. For today's episode, I talked with Emily Swaddle. She's a podcaster, coach, storyteller, nature connection facilitator, and much more besides. I've known Emily for a couple of years now, and actually worked with her on other projects. And I was amazed at how this conversation brought up so much that we hadn't spoken about before. We touched on the challenges of freelancing, the importance of community, coping with climate grief, and the role of communication in helping us transition to a fairer future. I learned a huge amount from our chat, as I always do when talking with Emily. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. We're on these like remote recording platforms for podcasts quite a lot because we work together in other contexts and I'm really excited to like actually ask you questions because obviously when you're colleagues and friends you often don't have the opportunity to really like follow your curiosity.
0: Yes you've never interrogated me before.
1: Not yet. (laughs) So thank you. You're very welcome. I know you as a podcaster, that's how we met, but I know you haven't always been a podcaster and I know you're not just a podcaster. I mean who is? (laughs) people talk about portfolio careers, but yours is really quite diverse. What is your week or what is your year made up of?
0: That's a really good question. I think I don't know there's anyone in my life that knows the answer to that question.
1: <laughs> do you know the answer to that question?
0: I think I do. But I do want to just preface it by saying that no week for me looks the same. I started to be a freelancer in 2020. And it's now 2023. So like, it's not like any year has ever looked the same either. <laughs> in my freelance life but I will tell you what currently I am involved in and I'll try not forget anything so I am currently working on three different podcast projects actually the carbon removal show it's awesome check it out also working on happy porch radio which is a podcast about the circular economy it's interesting stuff and Ben and I are also working on a little something something as yet unrevealed to the world about rest which is very close to my heart. And also in many ways connected to this climate stuff, even though it's not there in the title. So that's my podcasting gigs. And then I also do some personal development coaching. It's quite different from everything else I do, but I really enjoy it. It keeps me quite grounded to offer support to my coaching clients and have that regularity. And yeah, I really enjoy that. I also work with a company called Impact Forecast, who have developed a tool to help startups measure their climate impact. And I train the startups and coach them through the process of using that tool. That's a really interesting perspective, because you get to see like what's coming up, what people are thinking about in terms of new ideas and innovation. And, that, and I really like that. I'm also this year helping to organize the Oxford Storytelling Festival, which I'm really excited about. It's sort of come out of this passion that I have and a lot of learning I've been doing over the past year or two about nature connection and being out in the wild as much as we can be in the wild in this part of the world where there isn't much wilderness and connecting with the more than human world, connecting with other humans, connecting with ourselves. And I think that's it. But I mean, who knows? And also, by the time you actually get around to putting this podcast out into the world, who knows what I'll be doing? Because I might have changed three out of those six and then added another four.
1: What I love is you were uh, doing exactly what I do when people ask me that question, which is counting them off on your fingers. And then you run out of <laughs> fingers. Anything above five <laughs> projects is actually quite difficult to keep track of, and anything above <laughs> ten is just like incomprehensible. One of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was going through kind of my late teens, early 20s. I very much realized I wasn't a scientist. And I did always have this passion for the natural world, for the environment, for activism, and yet didn't really see where I fit in it, certainly professionally, in terms of what is my role within this kind of revolution that we need. I knew I wasn't going to be engineering new energy sources. I knew I wasn't going to be solving biodiversity loss and I went and did an English degree which very much wasn't preparing for those sorts of things <laughs> and I know you also didn't follow a route that would necessarily lend itself to climate maybe in a sort of surface sense so could you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah I was thinking about this. I, I think I always understood that passion for like the natural world and the earth and all she holds as a very separate thing from like academia. And in my academic life, I just kept choosing things that I enjoyed and I wanted to do. And, you know, at school, I chose music and art and and then did A-levels in languages and maths. And I was like, I just love these things and I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but that's what I'm doing. And then I went to university and did languages and and still had this like extracurricular desire to be involved in climate things and all sorts of other things, but just never felt that it could be brought into the academic thing because I wasn't doing science or geography, earth sciences. So after I'd done my undergrad degree, I did a gap year in which I was like, I am never going back to university. I'm so glad to be done with studying. You know, I just need to be out there in the world and do things. Within three months, I was like, I think I want to do a master's. Should I? should I apply for a master's degree and I applied to do gender studies in the Netherlands and that for me was a real like acceptance of this passion Emily that you have for equality and figuring out those injustices and and learning about all that stuff that I had a real passion for it can be something that you like actually learn and actually dive into in a sort of like formal sense which I'd never for some reason just never really thought of before (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Saying it out loud sounds a bit silly, but I just hadn't considered that. And so I was started my gender studies degree and the university that I was at, Utrecht University, had a green office. And I found this out in like Freshers Week, the Dutch equivalent thereof. And I was like, oh, what's a green office? That sounds fun. They had a veggie bag every week, you know, and I was like, oh, I'll buy a veggie bag and somehow be involved, maybe just seeing And when I went to speak to them, like, yeah, actually we need one more person to join our team this year. So if you're interested in the campaigns position, then you should do it quick because we need somebody to join ASAP. I was like, campaigns? I could, sure, I could campaign and I'll do it. What the hell? So I applied and turned up at the green office, not really knowing what a green office was. And yeah, got this mm, bit more than volunteer position at, at the university And ended up spending like two and a half years at the green office and learning that green offices are like this whole movement all over Europe. There's universities in loads of different countries that have green offices and they're all sort of working with the university to make the whole institution more sustainable from the sort of community level of students working with staff with catering managers and facility managers and also every just everyone coming together to try and change the university in an impactful way and yeah I mean I was doing that the whole time that I was doing my master's degree and in many ways it completely took over and the gender studies stuff was just kind of on the side. But I loved it and I loved the events that we did and the campaigns and everything and and just the team that was working there and the office was really cool. And it felt like we could actually see the change that we were trying to implement as we were doing it. And that was the most rewarding thing to be able to point to something and be like, this has changed now and that's because of the stuff that I've done with my team.
1: That's really cool. And I think there's something really powerful about a, a relatively young age being in a position of actually being able to kind of manage and oversee tangible impacts, because there's something very different about that compared to working on theory.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that we as a team, like looking back, we weren't liked in the university. We would turn up at people's offices, members of staff, you know, we would turn up at their offices or we'll send them an email. And you could just see them rolling their eyes and like, oh, God, this lot again. Because we were just this young group of students who suddenly had a bit more power because we were like working at the university and we had changes to make and we were doing it, do it, and boom, boom, boom. You know, we thought quite a lot of ourselves probably. But like, I think one of the things that actually made us have that impact is that we did turn up at people's doors and we were like hello we want to work with you to do this thing and we think it's really important surely you think it's important too right (laughs) and like creating those connections was definitely the number one thing that helped us make impact when i was there but in order to do that we did have to have a level of audacity i suppose (laughs) Mm. that we just thought we could and so we did
1: is that something you've taken with you
0: i suppose a little bit It's something that I think I would like to find again. (laughs) I, I think to a certain extent, I must have it somewhere in me because, you know, I keep starting new projects and thinking that why not just give it a go. But I don't think I feel as empowered as I did in that position of like, okay, we sort of have a mandate and we have funding from the university and we have backing and it was just a real launch pad to go and actually do stuff and actually make a change that I think you're right is super rare really and yeah I guess I'm (laughs) I'm trying to find that again a little bit.
1: I do think it's really fascinating that pursuing this type of work you are often putting yourself in a position of being disliked or at least being an irritant and I think that is true in in a business context because you're maybe working to a slightly different agenda than other people in a business. You're very much having to like fight against dominant narratives and for whatever reason, that irritates people. And I think there's also kind of a sense of self-righteousness, right? That this person telling me to change my behaviour is coming from a place of like, they know how to do it and I don't. And I think for understandable reasons, people don't like that. But how do you navigate that? How do you you move beyond that?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I've certainly experienced that. And as you say, like, I do understand where people are coming from when they get annoyed at people like that, because it can be sort of sticking a spanner in the works. I think for me... I mean, when I was younger and exploring what this all meant, finding the passion for the natural world and how to protect it, I was already, to a certain extent, being met with eye rolls, you know, at home. And sad so come home. I remember one time I went my summer break from university. I went and volunteered in an eco village in the south of Spain. I like to spend my summers in countries where I could practice my languages, but also in places where I could learn more about sustainable living and about how that might look. And so this one summer, I'd been at this eco village in the south of Spain and I came home and announced to my parents, I was like, right, we need a compost toilet. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we need a compost toilet. (laughs) (laughs) And it just... (laughs) I mean, obviously that sort of thing goes down like a lead balloon. Like, Emily, no no the context we live in is just no (laughs) and that was just you know I don't think it was uncommon for me to come home and just announce right this is just how we need to do it now and I think it did come across as quite hostile (laughs) but I have learned partly because I've been doing that like my whole life I have learned better ways to communicate and I think that there's no substitute for good communication and to be really open and say listen I don't actually know if this is the best way, or if this is going to make a difference, or if this is going to change things undesirably. But I do know that these are the things I value. And I think we should be putting them at the top of the agenda. And like, let's have this conversation. And the things that are important to you can also be part of this. It's not just the things that are important to me. And yeah, and I, I think it can be really, it's probably the most difficult thing. But also, part of the thing that fascinates me like how do we have this conversation in in a meaningful way is I think sort of what has been the thread of everything I've done in my career. career. I hate that word sorry I hate the word career. A because it makes me feel too adult I like I do not feel old enough to be in any way talking about a career but also because like there's this old-fashioned idea of what a career is that I don't have and don't want to have so I'm not sure I like the word but Throughout my working years, I've definitely followed this question of like, how do we have important conversations in a meaningful and impactful way? And sometimes that's looked like me putting on events and campaigns and inviting people to start the conversation. And sometimes it's looked like me hosting a podcast that is that conversation And sometimes it's been a very personal thing of me having a one-to-one conversation with people who I care so much about and love deeply but we happen to have differing views and I've had to like navigate those conversations really tenderly and really sensitively and it takes a lot of energy but there are times and I can think of a handful of times where those conversations have just gone right Mm. and it's the best feeling it's probably the times I'm like most proud of is when I can have a conversation with somebody and not necessarily change their mind but just understand that we're both open to what the other person is trying to bring to the table
1: I think it's also it's so difficult to know where people are with a lot of this stuff and I think probably you and I and anyone listening to this is probably used to quite a bit of resistance around some of these subjects with friends family colleagues whoever it might be particularly in online spaces, but also offline. And um, it's quite easy to assume that that resistance is coming from a place of like, I disagree with the principles of what you're saying. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's, I think more to do with maybe fear, more to do with maybe responding to the way you're delivering the message mm-hmm. or more to do with protecting other values that are in there. There's a lot, there's a lot mixed up in there when we're talking about lifestyle, diet, voting. Yeah. All these things that we consider maybe are important to the planet on an individual level, not to mention wider systemic issues.
0: And it's like people's emotional needs are part of that conversation, just as much as people's day to day habits, you know, and like, that can just make it really difficult. And I think one of the things that's come up a lot for me in those conversations is this idea of hypocrisy. Because so I think a lot of people who like, dive into the sustainable lifestyle stuff, and become in any way an advocate for that are faced very often with this, well, if you do that, but you don't do that, that means you're a hypocrite. Or if you do that, but you don't do it all the time, that means you're a hypocrite. And I think young Emily thought that being a hypocrite was like the worst thing in the world. I was just like, that is just awful. I can't, I can't bear being thought of a hypocrite. But I quickly came to realise that it's just impossible to do everything all the time. And fundamentally unsustainable. So I can't actually do that. And it also doesn't mean that I can't have that conversation. It's because I'm not doing everything all the time. doesn't mean that I'm also not allowed to be like, man, maybe we should be doing this. Hmm. It's this, I don't know, it's sort of like this weird like gatekeeping, gatekeeping, gatekeeping. you know? Yeah. Of like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> gatekeeping,
0: Trying to be more sustainable, trying to live in a more environmentally friendly way. And it just breaks down conversations before they even begun
1: yeah and i think humility which you've already identified is really important there because if you don't come with that then you're you're kind of setting yourself up for accusations of hypocrisy but i do want to look at hypocrisy because i think it's something we've all probably dealt with mm. i'm gonna put you in the hot seat for a minute go on you've mentioned quite a bit of travel so far this conversation mm.
0: yeah <laughs> You don't know the half of it, Ben.
1: Oh, <laughs> you've dropped in three <laughs> countries so far this conversation. And I know of several others that you have spent time in that I've recorded with you where you have been. So how do you feel about that? Because I know we both know on an individual level, it's one of the biggest impacts on your carbon footprint. And so, yeah, how, do, how does that sit with you?
0: Yeah, totally. Oh, man. I mean, it doesn't sit well, to be honest. It's a really tough conversation I have with myself. And I have that conversation with myself every time I travel. As a kid, I used to just... Travelling was like the biggest dream. And I've been very lucky and had the opportunity to travel to loads of different places for all kinds of reasons. And as an adult, when I have been able to choose where I go and how I get there... And if I've had the money, because it is much more expensive to travel sustainably, I've always gone for the slow travel option, which I find to be more fun most of the time. That said, I also fly sometimes and I hate that that has such a negative impact on the world. I really do. I hate that it's this really common thing that people talk about doing like once or twice a year of just like, oh, I'm going here or I'm going there or whatever. And yet, it's just got such a huge negative footprint. And yeah, I mean, I still don't know what to do about that. I want to make decisions about traveling that are based on, I know why I'm traveling here. And I know that the way I'm traveling is the best way for me to do it based on all of these values. And a huge part of that is the climate. And then the other thing is, I don't know, I feel like I'm not in a position where I can say I will never fly again. That feels really sad, but maybe I'm just not brave enough to say that. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Thank you for sharing that because I think, I feel like we've got used to one of the main topics of conversation being like, what are you doing this summer? You know, what are your holiday plans this Mm -hmm. year? We just really normalize this kind of conspicuous consumption when it comes to travel. And I find myself apologizing whenever I talk about going on a holiday or traveling for work or any other reason particularly if it involves flying just in this really like knotty space of recognizing that I'm admitting to something quite dirty but not really knowing what to do with it and in a way I feel quite good about that because I feel like in a lot of our conversations now it's just on the table like it's taken as read that this is not a great thing to do but I also feel really uncomfortable about it because I feel that it starts to create quite a lot of guilt and maybe even shame around individual behaviours. And I generally don't subscribe to an individualistic mm-hmm. take on, on these things. And I also just don't love the idea of us all kind of moving around, carrying that, right? Carrying that that guilt. And and then, of course, throw in the fact that it's an incredibly privileged thing to be doing. It just is. Yeah any given year just just in the UK 50% of people don't fly
0: Hmm. yeah that's one of the traps that I fall into as well So I look at some of the other people that I know and I'm like yeah but I mean look how often they fly and their carbon footprint must be astronomical and maybe I could just take this one flight because at least I'm not flying that much but then I'm like yeah but in the grand scheme of the world you know it, it, it doesn't take much for you to recognize the the privilege involved in that So I used to work at this company that had offices all over Europe and we worked on climatey things, climate innovation, etc. And I used to travel a lot for work, around twice a month, sometimes three times a month I was traveling for work. And I would always try and take the train, no matter where I was going around Europe. Sometimes that meant sleeper trains and making, you know, a trip of more than one stop people I was going to visit along the way. But I was always trying not to fly and it absolutely took it out of me. I just, I was completely worn out. Can you imagine like if you're (laughs) travelling every other week and you're trying to take the train, you know, eight hours every other week? It's just, it's really exhausting to keep on top of everything. But the reason it's exhausting is because the expectation is set at people can fly and get places quickly and things can happen in a certain time frame that just isn't possible when you're traveling by train or going over land or whatever. And so I was sort of burning myself out because I was trying to do the the slow travel climate friendly stuff and other people in the same company were just not at all. They were flying hither and thither for very short periods of time you know sometimes just a day in a place or an afternoon in a place and then getting a flight and you're right Ben like there's something about sort of pinning on the individual that really does not sit well with me but even on like company levels and organizations I feel like that's where change can actually be made and can be really impactful and then I was in this organization that wasn't doing that and it just felt like everything was upside down it felt like everything was upside down And that made me also think that the choices I make as an individual when I travel, if big companies do all kinds of rubbish, you know, way worse than this company that I was working for. It just, it gets really disheartening to make positive choices as an individual. It just kind of puts you off.
1: Yeah, there's so much in there because, I mean, aside from a climate justice angle, which I think we probably have to park that for now, but even within an organisation, the burden falls disproportionately on certain people and it's generally going to be the more climate aware and conscientious people as well as those who are maybe feel less able to advocate for their own needs so what's interesting to me about that is obviously then you were working in an organization and now you're a freelancer working in small teams with other companies with other freelancers that's something that you and I share and I think there's something quite unique about working in this space as a freelancer You know, you've touched on both this kind of exhaustion that you can feel. And, you know, obviously, as a freelancer, you have no reserves. So if you're doing that extra labor in order to make your work sustainable or you're doing extra research in order to make it sustainable, that's on you. There's no company resources you can draw on. You also talked earlier about doing your master's, feeling that in the green office you had a mandate. And I just wondered, as an individual, whether you feel that you lack that sort of institutional support.
0: In certain regards I suppose yes. You know depending on the institution you can get a lot of support from being part of something bigger. And I think for me the biggest thing that I feel is lacking. It's like a day-to-day we're in it together motivating factor that I don't get when I'm working on my own. But I don't really feel like I've got less of a mandate now. And I think this is maybe thanks to the fact that I'm in a bit of a bubble surrounded by other people who care about and want to work on issues of climate justice and other kinds of justice that I'm, I feel like I'm sort of, I have as much agency to go out there and make a change, make an impact as anybody else does. I believe that intellectually, (laughs) whether or not like I always feel that in my bones I'm not really sure, but I certainly feel that working with other people really helps to sort of get a sense of legitimacy and a like a much more stable footing. And I know that that changes from person to person. Not everybody needs as much sort of team rallying as somebody like me, I guess. So that is something I do feel I lack in the, in the sort of freelance zone. But I still feel like the pull to do it is still very much there.
1: Quite a lot of questions come out of that for me and I think one of them is around communicating this stuff and obviously as a podcaster you know as somebody who works with businesses with startups and even your work in storytelling nature connection and so on like communication seems to be a real thread running through your work. What have you learned about communicating climate and environmental issues over the past couple of years?
0: So much so so much. But I think actually not so much from a perspective of the climate issues, (laughs) which was your question. But I mean that I think I've learned a lot about communication and I've applied it to the climate stuff without it necessarily coming from there in the first place. So I think the learning really... Actually, I think a lot of the learning came from like my coaching training and the coaching work that I've done. Just coaching is this thing where you are having a conversation with a person, like no other conversation that you would have in normal life, you know? It's like the coach sort of turns off themselves as a personal being and just allows the client to be fully the only part of that conversation that is important you know for that hour when I'm being a coach it's all about the client and it's all about listening to them and it's all about reflecting what they're feeling and and working with them on their goals and values and priorities etc and I think I learned a lot about just in conversation in general or any kind of communication recognizing what people actually need in that conversation and recognizing what I need in a conversation and so when it comes to like communicating around anything but I think especially around difficult issues like climate and global injustices and and whatever we're still humans that are just trying to communicate and we still have some sort of need in any conversation like I need to feel heard or I need to feel like I can actually stand up and say my piece I need to feel like I'm adding something of value here whatever it is that we need in that conversation and I think a lot of sort of Bad communication happens when people don't recognise other people's needs or when one person's needs take over or whatever. And I think that's in one way or another, that can be like extrapolated out to more than just interpersonal communications and into sort of storytelling and podcasting and social media. I don't even know, like any kind of way of communicating, recognising, I guess the real core of this is what I'm communicating and why I'm communicating it is... I think it's some. I think it's like a little sort of trick that I, I do often and actually we do this we do this Ben when we're doing the carbon removal show we're trying to write a script this happens quite a lot is that we'll be writing something and you go oh no can we just stop here because I don't think I want this sentence like this I don't think it sounds right and I go okay what are we actually trying to say And then you go, well, we're trying to say blah, 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 blah. And I go, okay, well, why don't we just say that? And like, just try, because I love words. I love words so much, but they can be really tricky. And if we get lost in them too much, then we're not actually using them in an effective way to say what we actually mean to say. And I (laughs) maybe use too many words to say that, but there you
1: go. I love that because I think, I think you're right that the principles of communicating this stuff are the same principles of any kind of communication. What kind of comes up for me and what you've just said is firstly, being mindful of what you're trying to say, but also being mindful of what other people are trying to say and why they're trying to say it. Yeah, I think it can be really difficult.
0: And the other thing that I've learned, slash I'm still learning, because it's really, really hard. And I think it's hard for a lot of people. And I found it's really hard for me. is boundaries. Oh, man. I really wish we didn't have to be so like, strict and adamant about boundaries but I really do think we have to be and sometimes that means just being like this isn't the time or place for me to communicate this this isn't the right space for me to have this conversation or advocate for this thing or whatever and I think when I was younger I would have thought of that as like giving up or something but I do think it's actually a really important part of the process to know when it's not when it's just not right to communicate
1: so true and and also you know when you're not the person you should be communicating it or when you're not the best voice for a particular message totally obviously you you spend quite a lot of the time talking to the public to businesses to <laughs> <laughs>
0: Emily spends a lot of time talking. talking. I feel like if you had, if you had gone back to like 10 year old Emily and said to my, like, so your whole life is just going to be you talking. Everyone would have been like, yeah, that seems about right. That seems it seems so. to fit.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> you also, you're talking with people. It's two way communication most of the time. A lot of the time, not maybe not so much in the podcasting space, but even then interviewing mm-hmm. a lot of people. And you've talked about how you're becoming more familiar with, climate solutions obviously through the carbon removal show through happy porch radio and yeah. through your work with with startups you've had a bit of a ringside seat to new climate tech as well as some of the science behind what's going wrong and why we need to act on it based on what you've learned over the last few years what do you think some of the big misconceptions are or perhaps what has surprised you
0: <laughs> It's a bit of a confession And maybe it's not something I should say, actually, given the work that I do. But the actual tech stuff doesn't interest me all that much. (laughs) Like, I'm not really that interested in, like, the solutions. (laughs) That sounds bad. But I think the thing is, like, where people get to with a a solution of, like, this is going to save the world or this is not going to save the world or whatever, the complete picture of like the final outcome I just don't I don't know if I care that much about that what I care more about is how people are getting there the thought processes that people are engaging in what people value along the way I think is really really important and also how people are interacting with the world to get to that point You know, like you could get to the point of having this amazing technology that's going to change the future forever. But if you've just crashed through everything to get there, I just, that feels like a bit of a failure to me. But I'm not sure that was really a question. (laughs) But I I think I started with the fact that I don't care that much about solutions because I don't really know what the misconceptions are.
1: I think you do. Okay, mine would be that I think... The average person in the global north hmm. has this idea that this is kind of under control, and mm. like governments, uh, governments will, will get there, and they're doing what they need to do, and that we've got these international processes that are getting us towards where we need to be, and that maybe we're a bit behind, but yeah, broadly things are things are on track.
0: Yeah. Okay, I think a lot of people believe that tech is the answer. I think a lot of people believe that we're just going to invent a thing or that something is in the works already and it's just not quite ready yet and that's going to be the answer to saving the world and I don't agree with that. First of all I think there's a lot of technology out there that's already been invented that's already sort of ready to go and we're not using it to its fullest capacity for reasons beyond the tech itself. And second of all and I, I think, you know, my point about not really caring about the tech solution in the end is that I don't think that's the real answer. I think that the real answer is far bigger than that. There's, there's whole systems that are set up in ways that are ultimately detrimental or destructive. And I think that it's going to take a lot more than like, oh, there's just this this tech solution or there's an app, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a machine, there's an app, this is what's going to save us. I just don't think that's, I don't think that's going to, be the case and yeah sometimes i feel that a bit when i'm doing the work with the startups you know i run these workshops and it it can be like one workshop after another i just see the sort of different versions of similar ideas that come through and the passion in the people that are making these things happen is really inspiring but i i don't believe that one or two or even like a hundred pieces of new tech are gonna change very much at all
1: That's interesting. And I I guess I kind of wonder, like, the degree to which you believe that, or the degree to which that is like a fear that you're expressing, do you really think Mm. that, for instance, green energy and carbon removal and improved Mm. forms of agriculture are really not going to help us?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they are going to help us. And Maybe the point is more that they can't do anything in isolation. Mm -hmm. You know, that any new technology or technique or approach can only make a big change if it's backed by other kinds of change like policy change or lifestyle change or you know systemic things that need to change that use that technology and we actually say this quite a lot on the carbon removal show that like the actual techniques we talk about they're tools they're not the answer it's not just oh look you can suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere well we've won we've done it this is just part of a much bigger thing. And so I wish, <laughs> like, I think I I really wish that somebody could just invent something and it could just be, like, readily available and, and could just change the world. I, I mean, oh, God, that would just make me sleep so much easier. But it takes more than just inventing the thing, I think is what I mean, you know, because... Mm-hmm green energy and stuff is is super important and really impactful when it's used and available widely and also that's only solving like a a, a tiny slither of the pie right like there's there's many other things around it so
1: well i think i think what you're sort of alluding to there and where i think where i sit with it is that this tech can solve isolated issues it can improve our atmospheric co2 it can mitigate biodiversity loss so on so on but really, if we look at if we come at this through a climate justice framework, the problems we're trying to solve are much bigger than that, and that is about how we do politics. That is about how we conduct ourselves on a societal level, and that will inc- that will yeah. include all of a lot of this technology.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, I think maybe the 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 problem in terms of like me being able to see technology as, like, the ultimate solution. The problem is that when I sort of wind back to, like, how did we get ourselves in this mess in the first place? It doesn't feel like these individual technology solutions are the answer to that. You know, the reason we got ourselves in this mess in the first place is much bigger and broader. And so it feels like the solution needs to be bigger and broader. Not necessarily more complicated. It could be quite simple. Could be quite simple. But it it has to be, like... Big. <laughs> I don't have the answer. I'm just saying, you know, if anyone has something simple but big.
1: Yeah, do write in. Do write in <laughs> if you
0: do. We'd love to know how you're going to save the that.
1: I have a question for you, which I, I ask a lot of people who do stuff like we do, which is sometimes quite noble, you know, not always fantastically compensated, which is why aren't you a banker and an activist at weekends?
0: Why aren't I a banker and activist at the weekend? I mean, first of all, I'd be a really bad banker. I just don't, I don't think I'd be very good at it. Although I did love maths at school. So I feel like there'd be something in there that I enjoyed. But I think I'd be really bad at banking in general. I'll tell you why though. The real reason is that I want to have a life on the weekends. I want to know that I'm spending enough of my time doing things that I feel important and that I'm passionate about. But also know that I have time to rest. And then I have time to socialize and then I have time to create things that aren't going to be monetized and just enjoy the world that we're trying to save. You know, like I personally don't feel like I have enough energy (laughs) to sort of take on the full time like office life that would bring in much more stable finances and take on the life of like I'm fighting for this cause that feels really important to me that would just not be a sustainable way for me to live. I mean, I suppose another part of the answer to that question is that, like, there's different parts of being a banker, right? You could be a banker, you know, in a particular role, position, company, where you're actually maybe perpetuating this thing that you are the weekends are trying to like battle out of so I feel like that I couldn't deal with because I would just feel like too much of um like being pulled between worlds and like doing something that I felt really disconnected from and then doing something I felt really passionate about I just I couldn't be that that person and then also you could be a banker in impact finance and do something really connected to the whole like climate crisis stuff and also be an activist on the weekends and maybe I should have gone down that route <laughs> But, you know, I I I wasn't always a freelancer and, I mean, I've never been a banker, but some of the work I was doing before was pretty sort of, I suppose it had certain traits of like the corporate life in that there was a lot of hours and there was a lot of expectations and there was a lot of financial compensation and that didn't really suit me either. <laughs> I don't know, just like for me personally, I think I, I need a bit more freedom. Mm. But I'm still trying to work that out because, as I say, I've not been for very long and sometimes I'm not sure it's even going very well. So, you know, to be continued, really. Watch this space.
1: I mean, I don't want to, like, force you to get super deep. But on that note, what are you struggling with in terms of freelancing?
0: Mm. So I struggle with, I mean, like I said before, not having a team is one of the biggest things for me. I am very motivated by having other people around and very sometimes completely void of motivation when I don't have that. So not having other people around is a a big thing for me. I've also, actually since I became freelance, learned about the fact that I have ADHD and about what that means for the way your brain works when it comes to structuring your life. I mean, as I learn more and more about ADHD, it does just really feel like a whole bag of contradictions thrown in the air. Like it's just, everything just contradicts itself. So, you know, as somebody with ADHD, I need structure in my life. I need to have like consistent structure, but I have no capacity to build my own structure. It has to be enforced externally. And I also have a bit of resentment for anyone who pushes structure on me. So there's like a very fine line where structure might be accepted and then actually help me thrive in that way. And so, yeah, there's like, Lots of learnings about the way my brain works and the way my, I guess, emotional self works. But also, I think one of the challenges being freelance for me was when I started freelancing, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to have more space and to have more time like for the rest stuff and for the leisure and the creativity. And that's a really hard balance to hit to like know that it's okay to rest in this moment, even though if I don't do this bit of work today, then I'll not get paid for it for another who knows however long. And I really need to get paid. And if I don't look for the next bit of work today, then I won't get paid for the next bit of work for God knows how you know, there's just always stuff to be doing. And I think the freelance plus working from home makes it really hard to set boundaries on this is when I'm working, this is when I'm resting, this is when I'm playing. And I struggle with that quite a lot and <laughs> sometimes I rest more than I should and sometimes I work more than I should and also there's no way of knowing what that should is so it's it's all just a bit of a question mark you know
1: yeah I have to say when you said uh talked about going freelance to, to have more time to rest I nearly like, spit out my drink <laughs> I think we're sold this this idea. It's, it's very much like an Instagram narrative of freelancing, mm. which is sort of like cozy interiors and stationary sets and <laughs> big mugs of coffee and all of that, which like just doesn't really. I don't. I don't know anyone who has that kind of freelancing lifestyle, apart from people from extreme generational wealth or who are just very successful. But certainly, starting out, I just don't see how that's achievable.
0: Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally, yeah, and I think maybe it says something about like where i was at when i came into the freelance world that i was like i just need to rest and i did actually take some time after i left my previous job before i'd start doing any kind of work to just sort of rest and recover rejuvenate myself because i felt i needed it but i i am optimistic still And this is partly why the work that we're doing about rest feels really important to me, because I am still optimistic that we can actually find that balance, that there is a way to work sustainably in all the ways that we need to be sustained, including like financially, creatively and restfully. Like, I just believe there is a way. I don't know what it is, but I'm just... I think I have to believe that it's out there somewhere.
1: There has to be, or else we're all on a highway to hell. But I I think... (laughs) We obviously speak a lot about this, but something that I've really gained an appreciation of since chatting to you about these things is the degree to which our personal and collective well-being is linked to our planetary health, if you like. I wonder if you could just briefly speak to that and what that looks like to you.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, we talk about like... Our connections with the natural world and stuff, but we are the natural world we're we're just as much nature as as a tree is or anything and the disconnect that has grown between humans and human activity and like the more than human world I feel like that is something we all carry around with us like you were talking about this idea of carrying around shame and guilt about the way that we interact with the world. And I feel like that is a huge part of it, this complete... And for so many people around the world, it's like a a chasm. Like, there's absolutely no connection or, or very, very little connection between, like, the way they lead their lives and the natural world, for lack of a better term, that is, you know, from whence we came. Like, we are innately part of that. And yet, we can actually go out and, like, experience firsthand and understand more about, like, the world that we are part of, that isn't human-made. And when we do, I don't have to tell you how impactful that can be. Like There's studies and research about how much being connected to nature can improve people's health and well-being. But also just beyond any research that's been done, anecdotal experience for me personally has just been overwhelmingly positive in terms of connecting with the natural world. And, you know, I mentioned that I d- I did my master's in gender studies. I mean, gender studies, I think it's a bit of a misnomer for what the course really was, because we essentially talked about all kinds of power dynamics, and power structures and systems in this world. And to me, I was doing that study alongside working in, you know, this climate stuff. It was so intrinsically connected that I was just like, these two things go so hand in hand. It feels so obvious to me and nobody else saw it. The amount of conversations I had to have where I was like, oh yes, I'm doing gender studies. I'm also working at the green office. And people were like, what? From both sides, you know, people just couldn't understand the connection. And I think these days it's much more recognised that there is that connection between sort of social injustice and climate injustice. And to me, it's, it's all part of the sort of same story of power being abused power over people, individuals or different groups of people, but also power over like natural resources and natural space and other creatures, other animals. It's sort of a whole, all part of the same story. And oh, yeah, it makes me, it actually, it makes me quite sad. It makes me really sad to think about it because I getting to work in anything to do with something that you're passionate about is really special. I think there's a real privilege in that. And you get to like work, work, work. And you're like, okay, we're going to make this change. We're going to do it. And it's going to be great. And uh, and you're like determined and inspired and stuff. And then every so often you step back into the like, I'm doing this because, because we're not there. We're not in this wonderful world that we're trying to create. And when I, when I sort of step into that reality, it, it has a real emotional impact on me. I, I have been known to really grieve the state of the world and the way that we as a human species treat the more than human world that we interact with.
1: How do you cope with that?
0: I used to rely on the fact that I felt like I was having some kind of impact, that I could deal with it by trying to make the change. More recently, I have been learning to accept the grief as well, to acknowledge that change is really hard. Change of any kind is really hard and change of this magnitude is really, really difficult and that actually everything that we're sort of fighting against is, I mean, terrifying and heartbreaking and and to acknowledge those emotions as they come up and actually find spaces where they can be held and where other people can express themselves as well. Yeah, connection with people who feel the same way I think is really important. And sometimes I like bring it up, even in places where it's maybe not all that expected. You know, (laughs) like I'm just thinking of one example, like when we had, I think it was an early meeting about season two of the carbon removal show. And I had just had like a huge weekend in the wild dealing with this exact kind of thing. And I'd been really connected to it. and, And then I just felt that we were sitting down for this meeting about carbon removal and we were sort of all... this page of like we want to take action here and let's fight against the climate crisis but we were just like you know behind computer screens and there was something really disconnected about it and I remember saying and you you might remember the moment as well Ben when I was like guys I just really think that we should acknowledge for a minute like mother earth and like this is what we're doing it for and I, I got quite emotional and I actually think that I'm kind of glad I did, you know? That that was what was real for me in that moment and that felt important to bring into what we were doing and I think it's important to bring into everything that we do, really.
1: Yeah, I value those moments. I think they're, they're not always easy.
0: Oh, yeah, it's so vulnerable. As with any sort of, like, bringing your whole self to a moment, it, it can be really hard and really harsh and you can have a bit of, like, a vulnerability hangover from it that lasts for a long time. But, um... I do think it's it's really valuable when it when it can happen.
1: Hmm. I think something that you've alluded to quite a bit has been an uneasy tension on the one hand working against something that is very much the product of capitalism. I mean we've spoken about how both our personal and collective well-being challenges and planetary issues are connected to extractive exploitative capitalism. And also perhaps how that sort of grind culture, productivity culture works against us having those honest moments of connection around our work. You know, that moment of vulnerability that you shared, it's difficult to find the space for it when we're kind of accountable for every minute we spend. But how do you sit with that tension that you are very much working against some of the effects of capitalism, but working by necessity within it? Hmm.
0: Just to pick up on something you said about finding the time and space for those moments. It's also like finding the receptive people to share that with. You know, I feel really lucky that I was in a team. I'm still in that team. But (laughs) in that moment, the team that I was in front of, I knew I could say, this feels important and I'm going to be a bit emotional right now without it having too many negative repercussions. But that's not true for everything. And it's not true all the time for everyone. And, you know, that is sort of part of the culture as well, right? That the way we interact with each other, as colleagues, and the way that we interact with each other in like professional environments, whatever, is part of this capitalist culture. And you know, I think it has a spectrum. You can find instances of real tenderness and empathy, but also there's a lot of harsh working environments out there. But your question was, how does it sit with me to be a part of this, but also fighting against it? I mean, it doesn't sit easy with me. I'm a daydreamer. I daydream quite a lot. And sometimes I daydream about like starting afresh and just having the opportunity to not be part of all the things that feel restrictive and heavy and oppressive in the world but at the same time i think lots of people are always fighting against the thing that they're within you know whether that's capitalism or like the patriarchy or whatever system it is that we're a part of And that if you're brought up in a certain system, then it's actually a part of you as well. It's not just that we're in it, it's that we are of it. And we're also trying to fight against it. And I think that, yeah, that just seems to be a sort of standard operating procedure for (laughs) for how to get through the world. As much as it isn't easy and it takes so much energy and perseverance. And I actually think that the thing that can support all of us in those things is community like recognizing that we are all doing the same thing and that sometimes it's not gonna be possible you know on certain days certain weeks months whatever you're gonna be like I just can't do it I just cannot fight the fight today I just can't fight the fight this year because I've got other things to tend to within myself or around myself or whatever and if you're doing that on your own, it feels like a betrayal of the goals you've set for yourself or like your ambitions or whatever, even your belief system and and you like push against it. I have to keep fighting the fight. But I think as soon as you recognise a community and how the fight is being fought collectively, then it becomes easier to to sort of say, OK, I don't have to necessarily be right on the front lines right now because... Other people are doing amazing work and there are so many people doing amazing work that to connect with that and connect with the people that you're individually working with is the thing that for me certainly keeps bringing the renewed sense of strength.
1: That was beautiful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Ben.
1: So where would you say you are today on your climate journey and where are you heading?
0: Hmm... It's a good question because in some ways I'm like not as consumed on the day to day with climate questions as I have been at other stages of my working life. I do work on a lot of climatey things at the minute, but I also work on other things and not every day is piled high with questions of like advancing sustainably or making the best decision for the climate. Much more I find myself in a space of like personal and collective wellness and that Paired with thinking about how we can move forward dealing with the climate crisis, I think I'm in a place where that feels like the only way to approach it. This idea of like sustainability is often used for sort of climatey things. But I think that, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily the best word. If we do use the word sustainable, then it needs to also include things that aren't just about climate. And in many ways it's beginning to include things from like social justice around the world and global inclusion, but also from an individual perspective of like, if I'm going to do this work, how sustainable is it for me personally? And how do I maybe help contribute to a system that makes it more sustainable in general to do this kind of work? So yeah, I I think maybe I'm taking a bit of a rest (laughs) in terms of my climate journey. I'm like, I'm not turned off from it at all. I'm very much engaged with, I mean, mostly I'm engaged with like the nature connection stuff, of feeling how that ties into the way we interact with the world, you know, every day. But I think in terms of if I look at the bigger picture of my climate journey, I am in a bit of a lull right now and it feels like a necessary lull. So maybe I'm resting. I mean, it's not going to last forever. I'll come out of this rest and I'll be re-energized to do something awesome. Maybe, who knows?
1: Well, I for one cannot wait to see it. <laughs> thank you, Emily, so much thank for you. speaking with me. Yeah, it's just been a joy actually to talk about things that we touch on a lot, but maybe get like two or three layers down. And it's quite nice to go like four or five layers down occasionally. So yeah, thank mm, you.
0: Thank you. It's been interesting. I mean, it's weird talking about myself so much because I don't do it very often, but it's been good. I like it.
1: If people, if people want to find out more about you or follow your work where should they go?
0: Well, all of the several things that I listed on my fingers previously have their own bits and bobs, but I have a website, com. That's got everything on it, pretty much. You can find me on LinkedIn. Send me a message, say hello if you want. Pop around for a cup of tea. It'd be nice to see some people in real life, wouldn't it? It'd be lovely. You know, if you're in the area.
1: Well, thanks so much and have an amazing week.
0: Thank you. You too.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Climate Pivot. If you've enjoyed the show and found it useful, I could ask you to leave it a five star review, subscribe, or donate to the coffee link in this episode's show notes. But if I'm honest, there's one thing I'd really love for you to do. I'd be grateful if you could recommend this podcast to two friends you think it might benefit, who might be at the beginning of their own climate pivots or wondering how and where to begin. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself others and the planet and good luck with your climate pivot.